In any case, my name is Paul Roger. I teach in the district department. I also help to advise the Charter Harland, the Environmental Leadership Learning Community, first year community. Um, I teach uh, American environmental history and world environmental history. I uh, help to chair the Villanova uh, Earth Day Committee and I'm on the President's Environmental Sustainability Committee. So I have my papers in a lot of um, environmental programming on campus. And I have to say that since joining Villanova in 1999, Villanova as an institution has come a long way in offering uh, environmental programs, uh, both in science and in the arts, and in making the campus a greener place. Uh, I wanted to emphasize just a couple of things, uh, one of which is that the President's Environmental Sustainability Committee has charged us with creating these kind of forum to discuss what I think is the most pressing issue of our time, which is global climate change. And so I'm delighted that we can get together to continue a conversation uh, about this issue. And I was reminded of the importance of this just about a week ago, listening to NPR. Uh, it featured a 14-year-old girl who was absolutely convinced that global warming was a hoax. And they introduced this 14-year-old uh, girl from Virginia to a climate scientist in Denver, Colorado, and she went through all this data and talked about all these models. So despite overwhelming visual evidence, uh, despite a virtual consensus among scientists that humans are in fact altering the climate in ways that will imperil animal species and affect human communities, there are still you know, a lot of questions out there. So again, I'm delighted to address some of these questions. Uh, I think it's especially important as a Catholic institution that we do so. Catholic social principles, uh, including uh, the idea of the principle of stewardship, uh, the principle of subsidiarity, which says that we have to make the change ourselves. We can't let it be imposed upon us from uh, other groups. And also the preferential option of the poor. Those principles together impels us to uh, contribute in our own little way to the solutions to this problem, as well as helping to define the problem. If I could just take a moment to uh, advertise the Earth Day keynote, which is a film about climate refugees. And climate change is going to affect in the poor and the marginalized, more so than the poor. So please keep an eye out for that. Before I begin, before we begin, I want to thank Valley staff for hosting us and Joseph Robertson for organizing this. Uh, there will be a third round table, so please keep your eyes open for one. I think it's uh, April 7th is the tentative date, so uh, please keep an eye out uh, for that. My role is to introduce the speakers to facilitate conversation afterwards. And so uh, what I'd like to do is introduce each of the speakers now so that I can access the stage right and let them uh, speak. So uh, the first speaker is Shara Arman, who received a PhD from Cornell in medieval Renaissance history. She's worked on uh, topics of religious and social history in the Renaissance and period. Her current work in the field of religion and ecology is exploring concepts of how sanctity appears in the natural world and how humans derive spiritual sustenance from contact with nature. She teaches the Environmental Leadership Learning Community version of the first year of Augustine Culture Seminary. Joseph Robertson is visiting instructor of Spanish Language and Humanities at Villanova. He has been reporting on or translating reports on ecological economics for 10 years. He's the founder and director of the Hot Spring Network, a social networking project designed to bring researchers, inventors, and lay people together to accept the pace of paradigm shift innovations related to solving big problems like climate change. Um, he's also associated with the Citizens Climate 
Block. He has published a report, Building a Green Economy, and Economics of Carbon Pricing and the Transition to Clean Renewable Fuels, uh, and has been active in uh, a variety of other clean energy emissions policy. Uh, J. Matthew Roney, I'm sorry, is a staff researcher with the Earth Policy Institute. Thank you for coming up from Washington, D.C. Uh, he's made a uh, heroic trek from the District of Corruption, or the District of Columbia, or whatever you want to call it. Matt has been with the Earth Policy Institute since 2007, working closely with research teams on various publications. He's also written eco-economy indicator articles on oil bicycle production promotion and wind energy development, one of my uh, big uh, causes. He graduated from the University of New Hampshire with a BS in environmental conservation at the Summa Cum Lab. He's currently pursuing a master's degree in environmental sciences and policy from Johns Hopkins University with a focus on Chesapeake Bay conservation. So we have a distinguished uh, trio here, and uh, we're going to start with Charles Armour. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Paul, and thank you all for being here. Now, let's see. Supposedly, this is on. So, so uh, is that a good volume for everybody? Okay. Well, to start with a brief humorous note, the musical notes on this slide here appeared mysteriously when we transferred my PowerPoint to Joseph's computer. So they have nothing to do with my presentation. They'll uh, give you a little comic relief at the beginning. Uh, what I would like to talk about today is um, a very old and also a very new concept that some people are calling mutual flourishing, but can be uh, described in different ways. I'm going to give you some views of it, uh, just in order to raise the conversation about this burgeoning concept. So what is mutual flourishing? Um, it's an evolving concept based on ideas of unity and connectedness of all life forms. It's often based on spiritual and religious underpinnings, but what I think is fascinating a lot of people recently is that a lot of the most recent science of the last few decades, particularly in physics and related fields, is also pointing to some of the philosophical uh, convictions that go along with mutual flourishing. So arguably, we're kind of seeing convergence when it comes to this concept of humanistic thinking and scientific evidence. Um, Thomas Berry gave us one good phrase for understanding the idea when he wrote about the universe as a communion of subjects rather than a collection of objects. John Muir gave us another angle for thinking about this um, in an essay written in 1916 when he said, the universe would be incomplete without man, but it would also be incomplete without the smallest trans-microscopic creature that dwells beyond our conceitful eyes and knowledge. So I think what Muir was getting at was that there is uh, an ultimate wholeness, even if it might be barely visible uh, to a lot of us. The concepts related to mutual flourishing have been central to Aboriginal thought globally and still are. So we could look at many, many, many examples of Aboriginal um, philosophical, spiritual, religious belief and find these ideas of mutual flourishing. Uh, an American, Native American, an American Indian who is a member of the Cree Nation has expressed this uh, when he says that 
indigenous spirituality around the world is centered on the notion of relationship to the whole creation. We call the earth our mother, and the animals are our brothers and sisters. Those parts of creation which biologists describe as inanimate, we call our relatives. This unity is related to interdependence and connectedness of all life. So that's one way to conceptualize these ideas of interdependence and connectedness. Tink Tinker of the Osage Nation, who's a professor at Iowa in Denver, also has written on this topic. He says that if we want to understand the Indian worldview about relatives, the concept goes far beyond the human. My relatives necessarily includes all of life on our planet. The four-legged persons, the flying persons, from birds to butterflies and even flies, and all those people called the living, moving ones, that is, the mountains and rivers, the trees and the rocks, the corn that we plant to sustain our lives, the fish in the lakes, Ultimately, our understanding of our relationship to all that lives in the world around us is an understanding of a shared earth. So a lot of these concepts, as you can see, are thinking uh, more, we might say, in circular terms, thinking about interdependence, interrelatedness, uh, as opposed to um, a more hierarchical or linear frame of thinking, which for a long time has been a lot more familiar in the West. These ideas are easily visible in Buddhism. Uh, Chatsumaran Kabasing, this uh, Buddhist scholar in Bangkok, has said, Buddhism views humanity as an integral part of nature, so that when nature is defiled, people ultimately suffer. When we abuse nature, we abuse ourselves. So mutual flourishing, mutual suffering. Uh, arguably, biology and other branches of science are starting to prove that, in fact, this is the idea has also been explored by Islamic theologians. Syed Hussein Nasser from George Washington University has been one person who's written on this topic. And he expresses how in uh, the Islamic view of this idea, every being in the world of nature not only issues from the divine principle or the one, but also reflects its wisdom. And so you see here, as Nasser's um, statement continues, there is uh, a concept of humans as a world of nature all being intimately related as expressions of one creator um, as all existing together in an interrelated way. These ideas have been subjects of intense debate in Christianity. Uh, most of us are familiar with Genesis 1 and 2, uh, which famously conceptualize um, the idea of dominion, God saying to Adam and Eve, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things that move on the earth. And you can read Genesis 1 and 2 and take from that an idea of mutual flourishing. But uh, the way Genesis 1 and 2 traditionally have been interpreted is in terms of a hierarchical plot structure that places um, humans in a dominant position in relationship to Genesis 2 complicates things a little bit. Uh, the Lord God took the man and settled him in the garden of Eden to cultivate and care for it. Now, ongoing scholarship is uh, really questioning previous interpretations and translations of Genesis. So um, 
the cultural role of Genesis might be said to be becoming more complicated. The Hebrew scholar Mark Smith from NYU was here on campus in September and gave a really interesting talk on translating Genesis. And he suggested that taken in context, this idea of dominion in Genesis 1 really means something like supervised with care in a godlike way in fulfillment of humankind's creation in the image of God. So if we translated Genesis 1 in the way that this expert Hebrew scholar thinks is um, sort of mandated by the content of the text, it would read something like, God blessed them saying, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, uh, or supervise with care in a godlike way. Now, that still maintains the traditional Western hierarchical concept, arguably, where humans are in a superior role of supervision rather than in uh, a clear role of mutual flourishing. But these more recent efforts, and, and Mark Smith is not the only person to be saying that the way we translate Genesis is, is arguably not as accurate as it could be, these more recent efforts are opening up uh, ways for us to question whether our dominant long-term Western assumption that humans ought to be uh, having our way with the natural world and that we're divinely mandated to do that, that, that maybe we should be questioning those. Um, I had thought that I would talk to you more today about medieval and Renaissance thought, which is my original area of specialty. But I'm finding, as I continue exploring in medieval and Renaissance and early modern texts, that the hierarchical thinking so often overwhelms concepts of mutuality that it's hard to determine when it's legitimate to say that maybe we see some mutual thinking in medieval or Renaissance or early modern religious texts. So I'm not really ready to talk a lot about those. Um, some of you who've been in my classes know that uh, important early Christian writers like Basil of Caesarea and Augustine definitely viewed nature as having a role in human Christian spirituality. They might ask the natural world to inspire them toward love of God. Um, Martin Luther saw creation as reminding humans of God's goodness. That is still seeing the natural world uh, in a position largely of service to humanity. Lots of people have critiqued religion in general, including Christianity, for these views. Um, Scott Russell Sanders, who is at the University of Indiana, wrote a beautiful article in Orion Magazine a few years ago called Mind in the Forest. And Sanders says there that religions that oppose the heavenly to the earthly, elevating the former and scorning the latter, are in effect denying that we emerge from and wholly depend on nature. If you think of the touchable, eatable, climbing, sexy, singing material world as fallen, corrupt, and sinful, then you are likely to abuse it. So Russell is uh, allowing this long-term um, monotheistic assumption to be problematic. Some Christian theologians are engaged in questioning whether, in fact, that hierarchical assumption is essential to Christianity. Um, Sally McFaig, for example, at the Vanderbilt Divinity School, has uh, postulated or asked these questions. If we are not the center of things, then other beings do not exist for our benefit. 
even for our spiritual growth as ways to God in the way that uh, some medieval thinkers view the natural world. They exist then within the vast intricate web of life in the cosmos of which they and we are all interdependent parts and each and every part has both utilitarian and intrinsic value. Within our model of the world as God's body, all of us exist as parts of a whole. So that's an example of McFig's effort to test out this idea of whether within the framework of Christian thinking, uh, we might legitimately think more in terms of mutuality, interdependence, mutual flourishing, uh, rather than a hierarchy of importance. John Paul II has a very interesting document from 1990 that some of you may be familiar with. And some of his comments seem to point in this direction of a belief in a larger cosmic harmony. He wrote, if man is not at peace with God, then earth itself cannot be at peace, thinking, it seems, in terms of very relational concepts. He also wrote in this document, Theology, philosophy, and science all speak of a harmonious universe, of a cosmos endowed with its own integrity, its own internal dynamic balance. This order must be respected. The human race is called upon to explore this order, to examine it with due care, and to make use of it while safeguarding its integrity. So this possibly breaks out a somewhat separate idea whether or not these statements are entirely about mutual flourishing, this concept of uh, cosmic integrity involving all life forms uh, is arguably really interesting and important. Benedict XVI has also made some comments on ecological issues and um, interrelatedness. He wrote just last year, the book of nature is one and indivisible, it includes not only the environment, but also individual, family, and social ethics. Protecting the natural environment in order to build a world of peace is thus a duty incumbent upon each and all. So both John Paul and Benedict have really been vocal, I think, in important ways about the relationships between uh, the well-being of the natural world, well-being for humanity, and well-being among humans. Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew the First uh, from the Orthodox Church has similarly uh, expressed some of these ideas. Human beings and the environment form a seamless garment of existence. We are called to recognize this interdependence between our environment and ourselves. Desmond Tutu has also commented on how we might bring scriptural understanding to these concepts, and uh, very simply he said, uh, the golden rule is applicable. In matters of climate change, as in all our lives, our obligation is clear. We must do unto others as we would wish them to do unto us. Uh, again, thinking, I would say, in terms of mutuality and uh, mutual flourishing. There's not time for me today, and I also am not qualified to go deeply into the science that is pointing in directions of um, what we might call mutual flourishing. Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, L. Charles Birch, a geneticist, uh, wrote the following. 
Because of the unity of life, human love is something that can be extended to the whole creation. The ecological model of life implies that human love is to be extended to the rest of nature in the sense of sympathetic identification with the life of other sentient organisms. To really know is to be at one with that which is known. Perfect knowledge is perfect at one bent. So I think for Birch, the operative factor is not what species are you and are you more evolved in comparison to other species, but are you a sentient organism than we can think in terms of mutuality. Brian Swim has done some really interesting uh, cosmological work, and he suggests that the major institutions of the modern period need to be reimagined within an intelligent, self-organizing, living universe so that humanity might learn to join the enveloping community of living beings in a mutually enhancing manner. So again, this is another way of speaking around the question of thinking in hierarchical terms such that uh, humans have the conviction that any way that we wish to use resources is legitimate because we are humans, um, but adopting instead this different understanding of mutual enhancement. Swim also points out that uh, purely in physical terms, um, whether or not you choose to take that perspective in spiritual or philosophical terms, uh, we are all related. The material of your body and the material of my body are intrinsically related because they emerged from a single energetic event, uh, whether you call it Big Bang or creation or something else. Our ancestry stretches back through the life forms and into the stars, back to the beginnings of the primeval fireball. So Swim is taking that idea of relatedness um, into the extremely distant past, uh, very similarly to the early Native American quotations that we saw, but instead in terms of physics. I was interested to see that uh, a federal organization is expressing ideas along these lines on their website um, when they identify their 21st century vision. This is from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. And their website expresses that their 21st century vision centers on a holistic understanding of the interdependencies between human health and prosperity and the intricacies of the Earth system. The long-term scientific challenge is to develop and apply holistic, integrated Earth system approaches to understand the processes that connect changes in the atmosphere, ocean, space, land surface, and cryosphere with ecosystems, organisms, and humans over different scales. So that really caught my attention because it's not exactly the type of statement you might expect to find on a, a federal institution's website. Um, but someone at NOAA is thinking in uh, very holistic, integrated terms. Um, Wendell Berry has also expressed this in Think Little, uh, saying that the principle of ecology should keep us aware that our lives depend upon other lives and upon processes and energies in an interlocking system. Paul, how are we doing on time? Is that what we're doing? Getting close, okay. Um, I will skip Aldo Leopold for now that I know some of you are familiar with him, uh, and just briefly mention the Earth Charter, and then I'd really like to show you a couple of statements from Vandana Shiva's recent book, Earth Democracy. Um, because when we look at both the Earth Charter and Vandana Shiva's work, we're moving into a really practical realm 
where we can see how people are experimenting with actually applying ideas that are based on an understanding of mutual flourishing. So if you haven't read the Earth Charter, I really encourage you to take a look at the website. It's a really interesting and I think inspiring international document. Um, the preamble speaks about one human family, one Earth community with a common destiny. Wanda Nashiba, uh, whom some of you may be familiar with, is a, an Indian physicist and environmental and human rights activist. And she's been working on these issues for a long time, but her recent book, Earth Democracy, is very pointed toward, uh, as I said, a practical application. Um, I think her vision is that her concept of Earth democracy is the logical progression of our global democratic experiment in response to um, recent understandings of ecological issues. So she was pointing out here, I think, uh, both in biological and spiritual terms, we are the food we eat, the water we drink, the air we breathe, Living democracies are based on ideas of the intrinsic worth of all species, all people, all cultures. Shiva also, um, as someone who's familiar with Indian spiritual traditions and with physics, comments that she sees a convergence between the two. The ancient wisdom and traditions of non-separability and interconnectedness that we revive is evident in quantum theory the space-time continuum of general relativity, and the self-organized complexity of living organisms. So she sees her work, I think, uh, in promulgating this idea of Earth democracy as interweaving those ideas. Um, this is the uh, Earth democracy logo that she's using, and um, she suggests that Earth democracy's success concerns not just the fate and well-being of all humans, but all beings on the Earth. So I actually haven't read uh, all of Earth democracy yet, but it's an interesting place to turn if you want to see how someone is imagining uh, what we might do if these ideas of mutual flourishing are appealing, what we might do to uh, introduce them more formally into uh, practical living. What then is mutual flourishing? It can be a theological perspective, a religious vision, a moral intention, uh, a scientific hypothesis, and according to some types of science, an actual reality of ecological functioning, and also a political, cultural endeavor. So I will stop there. I'd love to take questions now or later, whatever Paul suggests.
my talk today is going to be about a theory of economics where the focus is on something else. Um, the possibility that you can actually generate uh, a wider base of resources instead of depleting them. Um, subtitle, working title, uh, the idea that the science of conscious driving is possible. Basically meaning we can actually take an interest in what's out there and try to quantify it. The environment is everything that surrounds us, but it's also everything that exists within us, everything that feeds us and that we feed into as well. It's not something that we can easily separate uh, from who we are. But we tend to see there as being a kind of fundamental division between ourselves and the environment or our activities in the environment. Um, we depend on all of the features of, of nature for what we have. There's nothing that we've fabricated synthetically that we have its origins and that conventional separation between economics and environment uh, is ill-conceived. It's not really an honest portrayal of reality. Um, it fails to consider real economic values simply because they're hard to calculate. What's the value of brains? It's immensely more valuable than anything we do. So we just don't count because it would be too hard to figure out how to work with those values. Um, by ignoring those values, we then run the risk of gross miscalculations of real costs. We misstate the underlying benefits and also the costs of specific activities. Um, by avoiding such questions, we can end up creating negative externalities on scales that we can barely begin to calculate. Um, for instance, if you have a country like Nigeria that's devoting a lot of its uh, economic resources to developing wood, develop a certain part of that economy economically, but if the result of burning carbon-based fuels is to distance virtually all weather systems that produce precipitation from most of Nigeria's territory, the costs are going to be far more dramatic, really incalculable in comparison. Um, and so as those externalized costs filter out through the broader economy, the cumulative effect of borrowing against those externalizations, which is what it is, don't pay for the cost of something, we're borrowing against the future. And somehow those costs are going to come back. Costs become so severe that the cost benefit efficiency structure, which is what enterprises are supposed to be, um, internal to that activity to collapse. A really easy example is BP and what happened in the Gulf of Mexico. They didn't expect to have to pay $20 billion for one asset. Um, but that is part of their business. And it should become part of their thought structure about how their business operates. And it should become part of all of our thought structure about how these fuels are or are not um, you know, cost effective. So generative economics means thinking about resources not as fuel, but as building blocks. Not as fodder, but as nutrition. It means thinking about how we use what we have to fashion a future in which we generate thriving, not scarcity. And ask ourselves, does a given activity deplete the vital resources available in a given ecosystem? And that can be natural ecosystems, but also artificial human ecosystems. Are human beings able to expand and explore their humanity? Are we improving or degrading what it is that allows us to thrive as human beings? For example, petroleum. It's not generative because the more we spend on it, the more we deplete a finite resource. Other aspects of the broader resource based in the process as well. 
fact that we've never really calculated with those costs. Um, mountaintop removal coal mining is a very easy example because the, the results of that activity are catastrophic and immediate it's not generous for the same reason that when you spend, when you deplete not only that resource, but you dump usually toxic resources into or waste materials into the environment, um, sometimes making entire areas uninhabitable. Um, wind energy is highly generative because the more we spend, the more we can expand the availability of the resource in question. Solar energy, same thing. Um, we can expand that resource. But the supply also far outstrips the demand. Right now, we have more than 300 times as much solar energy available in the United States if we do not capture it. Um, and that's by the most conservative estimate possible. It's probably 10 times that. The investment in education is highly generous because in fact what happens when you invest money in educating human beings is they get smarter, they make better choices, they organize more intelligently, and society is able to overcome entropy, which is a breakdown of natural systems. Um, Buckminster Fuller, who I have a fondness for quoting, tends to put really big things in really simple terms. Um, he said the human mind is the single greatest anti-entropy engine created by nature. And he sees this as a fundamental function of what humanity is for, that the way of all things is entropy. But in the meantime, there's also the possibility of organization, structure, and preventing and that's what we should be devoting our minds to. Um, human intelligence gives us the ability to consciously comprehend, synthesize, advance our knowledge, and stave off decadence and collapse. We're in a state of economic turmoil because we're not doing that appropriately. Um, economics, as we know it today, is about naming, describing patterns that are supposed to give us an understanding of balance. But our way of doing this has built into our economic infrastructure incentives for behavior that drives pathological imbalance, flagrant value distortions, and the false impression of sustainability. You might seem more familiar to us with the idea of endless growth, right? Um, the idea that economies can just expand infinitely is based on one of two or both um, ideas that we tend not to talk about. One is the idea that we can just get away with it. We'll just keep expanding and people won't notice that the values are getting too high and irrational. Um, the other is the notion that we don't have to worry because the limits of nature are so much uh, more vast than what we could ever do. We'll never have to worry about it. Uh, both of those are false uh, assumptions. Dr. Merrida, another thinker who I'm fond of uh, referring to, he writes about the madness of economic reasons and trying to figure out what it is that we try to give when we're being generous, what it is we try to take when we're trying to save time or save uh, anything of value. Um, the central concern for him is about when we seek something, when we seek to know about something, and it's not an attempt to know how we know things, what it is that gives us knowledge, but it's an attempt to know something external. Um, are we, in fact, pretending that something that is immediate, that is being mediated? means are we putting our own seeking in the way of understanding? We're distorting the thing we perceive by perceiving. If we don't see that, we can't see clearly. Um, in his terms, it's as if uh, we were looking for a noon at 2 o'clock, as if we wanted to show that we were given to and gifted at tracking the impossible. 
not all economic variables are quantifiable, certainly not within the scope of what we consider to be economic activity um, on a human scale. There are some goods that transcend momentary or even categorical valuations. Water. What's the value of water? How long can you live without it? It's so useful to us that it should be very expensive, according to economic theory. But if it were, people couldn't survive. So we're actually wrestling with this problem all over the world right now, whether it's Western states in the United States fighting over water resources, whether it's African countries either having skirmishes or literally ramping up, getting ready for war over these uh, issues, or whether it's food rides that are related to war, water scarcity. There are values that outlast and outspan the narrow definitions we struggle with them into. What is labor? What is productivity? What's the value of that? Half of the world's population, three and a half billion people, live on less than $3 a day. Most of them live on less than $2. Is that what their work is worth, all their effort? Um, most of those people are working pretty hard to sustain their lives. Um, the site Lester Brown, we want to hear more about. Um, it's a new book in the United States, uh, which harvested 416 million tons of grain in 2009. 119 million tons went to ethanol facilities to produce fuel in the farms. That's enough to feed 350 million people per year. Enough grain to feed the entire U.S. population plus another 14% for one year, literally up until. Because that's our approach to solving the problem of scarcity of combustible fuels. Um, there are certain segments of the economy which, far from being generated, are genuinely parasitic. Right? The mountaintop removal coal mining is a good example. And because in order to produce that resource, we have to waste so many other resources that we're never going to have access to, that we're never going to be able to recuperate, and it, that undermine the productive capacity of everything around that other economic activity for the long term. Uh, the field of neuroecology, which is not so much about neurology as it is about very, very small-scale uh, ecological thinking, examines the role of keystone molecules, metabolic starting points without which an ecosystem cannot be what it is. So if the existence of those molecules in a given region is threatened or undermined, or if their prevalence is reduced, the entire function of that ecosystem is going to put at risk. Something we cannot see happening unless we're very careful about receiving it, unless we assign the, the appropriate value to things that traditionally we've never valued. Um, such molecules penetrate deep into the ecosystem and manipulate interactions all along the way. These are things that we don't quantify because they don't fit into an enterprise structure. We can't talk about them as producing economic value or profit, um, or as balancing budget projections or private uh, or public enterprise. So we just ignore their value. Uh, but we do that basically at our own peril. So not every substance can be a keystone molecule. Not everything that exists in the environment has that pervasive impact, starting from such a small scale and then reaching out to everything else. But when major segments of our economy are eroding the metabolic basis for sustaining life, there are very serious costs. By metabolic basis, we can think of Anything that happens in the environment that has a virtuous impact, meaning it creates more than it consumes. Um, and because of the metabolic way that nature interacts with itself, that systems interact with each other, because there are no closed systems, it's possible that in a given system, we can actually do that. We can actually in 
response cause is not the vice of markets, which is the intense concentration of wealth to those who are most successful at using those markets to their advantage, but an expression of their most intelligent democratic potential, which is the diversification of the asset, so that it's not just the old boys or the big boys. It's not just the powerful that can wield power in It's anyone from anywhere who's able to access the resources necessary to function in that environment. Resilience, which means the underlying system, the natural systems on which we rely, need to have elasticity to survive threatening impacts and parasitic uh, economic activities. We need to overcome those parasitic elements of our economic thinking and learn to count all relevant values, not just the ones we can easily quantify. Some people would say, well, that's a bit of a vague recommendation. You don't provide a way to quantify everything. That's what that's what the job is, is to go out and try to find those ways to do it, not to say, I'm comfortable with balancing things out on the spreadsheet I've made according to the definitions I understand, and I'm not going to think about the rest, because the rest matters. The rest may be more vast and more influential than everything we are about there. Um, so under our current model, we're overcoming fossil aquifers, which means they can't be replenished, not in time to use the same amount of resources we're depleting sustainable arable land. We're destabilizing global, global climate patterns. We destabilize monsoon patterns that spans from Western Africa all the way to the Western Pacific. You have billions of people who will be directly impacted. And the economic and political impact of that is literally unknown. Um, we're driving a planetary mass extinction, the sixth mass extinction in the history of the Earth, as far as we understand something that in the past has always been done through natural means, and now it's really the result of our pressure on the environment. Um, we consume more water than we have, which is a big problem. At some point, we'll run out. We consume more grain than we produce. Again, a big problem. At some point, we're going to run out of grain. So to tell the economic truth, we need to start asking ourselves whether major economic trends are parasitic or generative, not just in the narrow scope that they can see for themselves, but in terms of all the stakeholders, we're really involved. Um, whether we're making sustainable prosperity more or less possible, because this is something that we do with every act that we take, every action we take in the economic environment. And we need to ask ourselves what we value most and how we go about valuing it. Uh, so just a couple of questions, three questions to take away. Um, can we be honest about the value of basic natural services and major resources? Can we quantify the value of what is human and what is alive in our economic landscape? If we can't, then we need to make room for the unquantifiable in our economic calculations. Um, do we need to move beyond strictly numerical process for determining value? It might be that to really have a generative approach to understanding the economic landscape, to quantifying things like the Human Development Index, basically the state of flourishing across the world, how good life we need to take what's quantifiable and reduce it to a small component of our overall estimation value. Um, so that's all for now. And um, I'll, I'll pass back to you.
work at the Earth Policy Institute. A lot of it is working closely with our president, uh, Leslie Brown, who's been doing environmental writing for decades. And, um, okay. Am I too loud? foundation, whether it's clean air, clean water, biodiversity, uh, a stable climate. And um, as our economic activity undermines the very systems uh, on which that economy depends, um, we're coming perilously close to the edge, uh, inviting societal collapse as a result of destroying the economy's eco-supports. Um, and one of those that we've been talking about today is uh, filling the atmosphere with greenhouse gases relentlessly and weighting the climate ice in favor of um, stronger storms, rising seas, and heat waves that, uh, that crush crop uh, yields. And because all these negative trends are happening and looming roughly at the same time, whether it's water shortages or uh, food shortages, food riots, um, and global climate change, uh, and they all either directly or indirectly threaten our food prospect. We know that we're in trouble with the business as usual mentality. Um, and that the tipping point could come really at any moment. Um, last year gave us a glimpse of what could become the norm uh, very soon. Um, it was a year that tied with 2005 as the hottest on record. And it saw 19 countries reach uh, record high temperatures. Uh, one of the biggest stories in that year was that of the Russian heat wave, which lasted for eight long weeks between June and August. Uh, the average temperature in Moscow for the month of July was 14 degrees Fahrenheit above the norm. Hundreds of wildfires were starting every day, which sent acrid smoke into the cities and choked it for weeks, not to mention causing an estimated $300 billion worth of forest loss and the cost of their restoration. And Russia being a major uh, player in global grain exports, slightly more, uh, more than one-tenth of global grain exports in 2009. It saw its harvest drop 40% from 100 million tons to 60 million tons as crops withered in the extreme heat. Uh, because of this, wheat prices shot up more than 60% between early June and early August as markets factored in the impending loss of this grain and Russia's decision in early August to ban all exports until at least the end of the year in an attempt to keep their domestic food prices down. So this was bad. 
but had the heat wave been centered on Chicago instead of Moscow, things would have likely been drastically worse. Uh, the United States would have easily lost 40% of its grain harvest, and instead of losing 40 million tons, we would have lost 120 million tons. And such a loss in the world's leading exporter of grain would precipitate complete chaos in world grain markets. We'd likely see food prices that would make those in the 2007-2008 food crisis pale in comparison. And if you remember back to those days in 2008 when grain prices had reached triple their historic highs, we were seeing food riots and unrest in more than 30 countries. We saw deaths in Morocco and Yemen. We saw the army in Egypt called in to bank bread for people so that they wouldn't riot in the streets. Haiti's prime minister was forced to step down after weeks of protests in the streets about food prices. And so it's hard to think about the results of Chicago-centered heat wave that might have rivaled that of Russia in 2010. But as the planet continues to warm, such extreme weather events will likely become much more frequent and eventually hit such an important exporter. But even now, even without a complete disaster in a major exporting country, food prices are fast approaching their record highs from 2007 and 2008 uh, after having lowered somewhat due to the recession and the record uh, 2008 grain uh, harvest. Uh, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization's food price index reached an all-time high this, December, this past December and then again in January 2011. Uh, and we can see that this problem of high food prices and food price volatility is not going away. Whereas past food price spikes were largely driven by single events such as monsoon failure in India, uh, the record food price inflation of 2007 and 08 and the one we're currently seeing right now um, are driven by trends on the demand and supply side of the food equation. Some of these have been in progress for some time and others we're only seeing come into focus. Uh, now, on the demand side, we have a population growth of about 80 million people per year. Uh, some 3 billion people desire to eat more grain-intensive livestock products like meat, milk, milk and cheese. They're all very grain-intensive. And as Joseph was talking about earlier, the rather recent and extremely significant conversion of grain into fuel for cars. Um, as he said, 350 million people could uh, live on that grain for a year. Uh, interestingly, the amount of grain that it takes to fill a 25-gallon SUV tank could feed one person for one year at average global uh, consumption levels. So the, it's really an insatiable appetite that we have for uh, biofuels. And uh, we did a calculation that said if we converted all of our grain land here in the U.S. to uh, corn for ethanol, that means we're not growing any food for uh, export or for uh, consumption here, we could meet just about 18% of our fuel needs, uh, automotive fuel needs from that grain. So we know it's not really a long-term uh, solution. On the supply side, we have very little unused arable land left to till. Uh, crop lands being converted to other land uses as cities and industry expand, as well as being paved over for growing flower fleets. And importantly, in China, this is the case. Uh, precious topsoils being quickly eroded on much of the world's crop land, lowering its productivity. And then we have the threats of climate change, which we've been talking about, the crop withering heat waves, sea level rise, melting mountain glaciers in Asia. Um, also, and Joseph went over this a bit, uh, another threat to severely restrict, also threatening to severely restrict supply or water shortage, just as we overcome aquifers. So we have about half of the world's people, about 3.5 billion uh, out of the 7 billion that were set to hit this year, living in countries where uh, aquifers are being overpumped to produce food, and water tables are falling. Um, one stark example 
is uh, Saudi Arabia, which in the 70s became self-sufficient in wheat by basically farming the desert, mining water from an underground aquifer that's not replenishable, it's not on a human time scale. And they succeeded, they became self-sufficient. Uh, um, but using this ancient water for irrigation, uh, they realized in 2008 that the aquifer was largely depleted. They would no longer be able to use it for food production if they wanted to be able to drink it. So they've gotten out of the wheat production business altogether. And so theirs is really the first water-based food bubble that's first in the world. Uh, in terms of shared global production, Saudi wheat is a drop in the bucket. It's not very important um, in terms of the global picture. But this could be a sign of things to come for China and India. Uh, two countries that are the number one and number two wheat and rice exporters in the world, or excuse me, producers in the world. They consume much of, they, much of what they produce. Some 175 million people in India are being fed by grain produced by overpumping. Um, and the similar number in China is 130 million. Um, so when their water-based food bubble first, it will be chaos on world grain markets, and we'll see price rises that make 2007 08 look like nothing. Overpumping isn't the only negative water trend uh, threatening food production. As temperature rises, we're seeing shrinking mountain glaciers in the Himalayas and on the Tibetan Plateau. And these are extremely important because their ice melt and the dry season uh, supplies the major rivers of Asia, the Mekong, the, the uh, Yangtze, Yellow, Ganges, etc. So if these rivers become seasonal, flowing in the wet season, not in the dry season when irrigation needs the greatest, uh, those farmers are going to be out of luck. And so will be hundreds of million millions of other people in those basins who depend on the water for daily use. And finally, sea level rise due to climate change has great implications for food security. Uh, some of the latest estimates show that we could be looking at a six-foot sea level rise within the century versus a six-inch rise over the 20th century. Um, and just a three-foot three sea level rise would inundate many, if not all, of the rice-growing river deltas of Asia, uh, including the Mekong River Delta in Vietnam. And Vietnam's the number two rice exporter in the world. So if their crops devastated uh, by rising sea levels, uh, people will feel it worldwide in terms of prices. So with all that said, how much time do we have before the deforestation, the overplowing, the overpumping, and carbon pollution catch up with us completely. How long do we have to avoid environmental and economic collapse? The unfortunate answer is we don't know for sure. No one knows. But we do know that each year we exceed the Earth's regenerative capacity by half. In other words, we're using the equivalent of 1.5 Earths each year, living off natural principle, if you think about it in terms of a savings account, uh, rather than the interest provided by the Earth. And this overshoot only keeps growing every year. Uh, and with the aforementioned trends, including water-based food bubbles beginning to burst, the devastating effects we're already witnessing and will see more of uh, from climate change, we know we need to move quickly on many fronts. And the roadmap that we offer in the book is called Plan B. Uh, it has four components, stabilizing climate, eradicating poverty, stabilizing population, and restoring the Earth's natural support systems. This climate stabilization part of Plan B, Plan B involves raising energy efficiency in transportation, lighting, appliances, and other uh, sectors such that we hold electricity demand flat to 2020. We ramp up renewable energy with wind as the centerpiece energy. That's Paul's, uh, Paul's baby. 
uh, to back out fossil fuels, especially coal-fired power plants. And we also uh, have an initiative to end deforestation on a net basis worldwide while engaging in a massive tree planting and soil stabilization program to sequester carbon. These initiatives will allow us to cut net carbon emissions by 80%, but not by 2050, which is the politically palatable uh, time horizon, but by 2020, because we feel that that's what's going to, what it's going to take to have a good, good chance of minimizing the uh, rise in the Earth's thermostat uh, and save Greenland ice sheet, for example. Uh, this sounds exceedingly difficult to achieve, and it will be, but it's far from possible. So I think I'll get through the climate stabilization portion, and if you have questions about the others, we can go through that as well. Um, every activity in our modern economy can be done more efficiently. Uh, just take something as simple as light bulbs. If, uh, if everyone switched from incandescence to compact fluorescence in residential lighting and switched to high efficiency lights in commercial uh, industrial applications and LEDs and street lights, we could close about a quarter of the world's coal fire power plants. 2,800 coal fire power plants, about 700 we could close just by switching to high efficiency lighting. Uh, there are similarly huge potential savings in cement and petrochemical manufacturing, energy efficiency retrofits, and so on. Um, and five examples, you know, it sounds like impossible, but five examples from the renewable energy side really give me inspiration in thinking about this. So Texas has long been the U.S. leading exporter of oil. Um, it's now our leader in wind energy as well. Uh, and it, all of the projects that are now under development in Texas actually are built and start generating electricity. About 90% of Texas's residential electricity needs will be from wind. Also, if it were its own country, Texas would be the number six on the list of world wind producers. Um, and there was some talk about secession last year. So maybe that's not far off, I'm not sure. Um, Germany, which gets about as much sun as Seattle, Washington, has become number one in the world in solar photovoltaics and production and installation. Um, meanwhile, it's also got a multi-billion dollar solar manufacturing industry. This is all because of pro-renewable energy uh, policies from the government. Uh, meanwhile, its coal use has dropped by half since the 1980s, so you can't switch. Uh, China, we talk about China building a coal-fired power plant every week or every two weeks, uh, depending on who you read. Um, but after 2010, China is now the world wind leader. It, it installed the most last year, and it now leads the United States in terms of wind generating um, capacity. Uh, its wind-based program, which was begun in 2008, dwarfs any other renewable energy um, initiative worldwide. Uh, if this is uh, seven wind mega complexes or wind bases under development in six Chinese provinces, and when they're finished in 2020, which is the goal, and they've exceeded every one of their renewable energy goals uh, well ahead of a, a schedule, they will have 130,000 megawatts installed in these provinces on top of what they have already. Uh, that's just about as much as the whole world had at the end of 2008. Uh, also enough to uh, meet the electricity needs for 200 million people. Lastly, every single one of the world's top emitters of carbon dioxide from fossil fuel burning could meet 100% of their electricity needs from wind. That includes the US and China. So I think I have a short description of the social goals and the restoring the earth goals. I think we need to go quicker.
Simultaneously, as we undertake the task of stabilizing climate, we also need to tackle the social components of Plan B, which is stabilizing population and eradicating poverty, uh, which really go hand in hand. Nearly all of the 2 billion or so people projected to be added to the Earth by 2050, uh, according to the United Nations, will live in countries and regions that are already um, pushing up against the limits of the natural resources and can ill afford further increases in population density and a burgeoning demand for resources. Uh, these are areas that know also know their fair share of poverty, and this is no coincidence. In many cases, large families beget poverty, and poverty begets uh, large families in a, in a, in a vicious cycle. Uh, the Plan B goal is to stabilize population at no more than 8 billion by 2040 through a variety of measures. Um, these include providing reproductive health and family planning services for the 215 million women worldwide who would like to use them but don't have access. Uh, it also involves achieving universal basic health care and combining universal primary education and school lunch programs because we know girls who stay in school longer tend to wait longer to get married, have fewer children than they do. And once set in motion, the shift to smaller families uh, really helps reduce poverty and vice versa. Uh, and as I mentioned at the beginning, the world's on a suicidal path of overconsumption and destruction of our natural support systems and reversing this is the fourth of Plan B. It will take a massive worldwide effort. And what we lay out in World on the Edge is a series of measures, including helping farmers uh, implement much more water-efficient irrigation techniques and, and crops, uh, stabilizing soils through tree planting and conservation agriculture, and establishing a global network of marine protected areas to regenerate fisheries. Um, so how do we get there? There are two policy cornerstones, overarching policy uh, priorities here, restructuring taxes and redefining security. Uh, the first, restructuring taxes, as uh, Joseph was pointing out, is a recognition that the market as it operates today is not telling us the ecological truth. Uh, the price of burning gasoline in our cars or burning coal for electricity does not include the indirect costs of climate change, air and water pollution, and so on. And in fact, uh, today I just read about a new study from Harvard researcher Paul Epstein has done a lot of work in health and the environment. Um, it indicates that the hidden costs of coal use in the United States total some $345 billion, with a B, dollars in, uh, alone, in the United States alone every year. So these activities in reality are extremely expensive, but the market tells us they're cheap, and so we act accordingly, um, making economic decisions that are harmful to both ourselves and to the Earth. Uh, so what we propose in World on the Edge is a carbon tax to be phased in over 10 years, offset with an equal reduction in income taxes. So we don't change the level of tax burden, we just change what we tax. This would be a powerful signal to the market, driving the shift from fossil fuels to renewables. And the next policy priority, the second, is to redefine security, which means a fundamental reorder of fiscal priorities. Uh, as the result of the war-filled 20th century, we have an idea of security that's uh, largely military-based. Uh, but putting our civilization on a sustainable path means realizing that instead of military aggression from um, an armed superpower, the true threats to civilization now are runaway climate change, uh, population growth, water shortages, and the growing number of failing states and governments that are uh, falling due to these trends that are undermining them. And we, if we redefine security, we can make that happen. Um, lastly, I'd like to use a quote from Lester. 
Uh, it's one of my favorites. Saving civilization is not a spectator sport. So we all have to get involved in order to make the social, political change that we want to happen actually take place. Um, and this means taking the message to Capitol Hill, as, as Joseph has done with uh, Citizens Climate Lobby. Um, we're joining with a local chapter of the Sierra Club that's fighting to stop new coal-fired power plants um, from being built. Um, these kinds of, of actions and these kinds of developments give us something to build on.
consumers to households. Every household will get the same amount, whether they're you know, a billionaire or whether they're on food stamps. They get the same numerical amount. So in that sense, it cushions the people who can least afford the price rise. And it incentivizes the people who can't afford the price rise to change their behavior because otherwise it will cost them something. Um, the idea is that over time that fee would escalate. And then as it escalates, people's incentive to go to greener fuel sources is much more serious. Um, but it doesn't automatically hurt industry in the short term. So what it also does is it incentivizes carbon burning industries to change their behavior too. Um, you could lessen the impact in terms of your market share if you, if you make energy burning coal or if you're an oil producer um, by simply getting into those industries that'll be privileged in the new environment. Whether that's something that can pass now in the current legislative climate, it's a pretty difficult sell. There are a lot of people uh, who are new to the Congress who are there partly because they are diametrically opposed to the idea of doing anything at all related to climate or emissions. Um, some of those people can be reasoned with. Some of them, what they're worried about is climate and their perception of that issue. Um, some people are willing to work on innovation and incentivizing new technologies. So there are ways of, of trying to implement a policy that would do that, where the tax is not about imposing a penalty, but it's more about changing behavior. Um, and what we're looking at is ways we can actually calculate what is the cost or benefit to a given local economy, a given state, even to a given business that's already in the energy sector of taking advantage of that transition if such a fee is imposed, because it might be that if the fee is imposed and the investment incentives start to flow in the right direction, those businesses that would otherwise be harmed by a higher cost on carbon-based fuels would actually be helped. And you do have major uh, investment banks on Wall Street that have been preparing for this for some time. They know it's happening in other countries. They know it also tends to work, so eventually it probably will happen here. Um, and they're preparing to pour money into that industry when it becomes politically viable. So it looks like the current legislative climate is that it can't pass, but I don't think that's a done deal. I think there are people who are willing to reason about how exactly you implement it. I don't know if that's a helpful answer. If I could just plug your pamphlet, which I tracked on the Federal Register, it's called Climate Change Action uh, yeah, that contains some information about the impact of carbon pricing and about some of the technological solutions that would make the transition a lot easier than we, tri than we tend to think it would be. Um, and that's available free of cost.
making the transition. You know, China's not closing down its coal-fired power plants. However, wind is just one of the renewable energy uh, technologies that they're really ramping up quickly. Um, the part of the reason for that, we think, is that the government is realizing that its uh, industrial uh, practices, I mean, water pollution, uh, they have many cancer villages in China, as they're known, uh, where cancer rates are just sky high and a lot of pesky industrial pollution. Uh, they realize that their breakneck economic growth, as it's been modeled so far, is poisoning the people. And so while they might tell, not tell the people that, they seem to be taking steps uh, towards uh, addressing it. Uh, in, in India, they just uh, revealed, it was late, Nine, I believe they revealed the uh, national solar mission, and so part of what that is uh, meant to do is uh, get distributed solar photovoltaic cells to build on the village level. So not building a central power plant anymore, focusing on uh, generating the electricity on site without the associated air pollution, that kind of thing. So on the energy front, I think there are a lot of good uh, developments happening right now. Uh, water is another big issue. China and India are, as I mentioned, two of the um, countries that are having the largest issues with falling water tables and uh, water shortages in addition to water pollution. Um, there are various techniques based on uh, just timing of the monsoon and planting uh, crops later on, trying to uh, uh, coincide with the monsoon rains rather than planting early and getting another crop out of it and making more money. Um, realizing that their aquifers are not going to last long enough for them to have many more harvests like that and waiting until uh, applying the seeds for the monsoon. So that there are definitely certain things that, that are being done and can be done. Uh, and we have more descriptions of that as well. Add to that, just briefly, um, I think, you know, I think all of us have talked Harnessing or pulling. 
plugging into those values, I think is really important because otherwise, um, the converted really want to go for wind and solar, but those who think they don't care uh, are able to stay out of this session. I just wanted to add to, to this, uh, to the response to this question. Um, it, it's not necessarily the case that um, renewable energy is vastly more expensive. In certain places where um, the access of renewable energy providers to the grid and to the marketplace is limited because the control of that marketplace is very concentrated, maybe in the hands of only one company, um, and maybe the laws of that state or that region don't provide more access, the cost can be much higher. But it's much more about infrastructure and the economic situation of a given region than it is about the technology. Um, in North Carolina, I think it is now. Um, it's now cheaper to provide energy with solar power than with nuclear power. Um, and that's because of all kinds of trend lines regarding the cost of producing nuclear energy, um, building new plants and everything. Uh, but it's also because the cost of producing solar energy has been coming down dramatically. What happens with solar energy, maybe even more than with wind, is that it starts to follow the, the, um, the accelerating uh, return that you see with computer processing power and memory, because you're using electronics, you can accelerate the rate of, of increase in efficiency dramatically. With each advance, you can take a bigger step forward next time. So we've been seeing the power of solar uh, voltaic energy increasing dramatically, even as the cost comes down. And now there are ways of putting cells together that require very little or almost no silicon, which can reduce the cost if the right materials are um, that's one thing. Another thing is whether or not these things are affordable depends on who's paying for them. In Germany, where in the late 90s they decided to start transitioning some of their income tax over to energy so that they would essentially put a higher burden on people who burn things to make energy than on people who use renewables. They created a boom in renewable energy, so now they're number one in solar. They're also the number one producer of the technologies for wind power. And in their use of wind power in some parts of the country, they're now producing more than five times as much wind as they consume. So there's a whole industry of technology and investment that's being built up around taking advantage of this opportunity. Um, in Germany, the cost of renewable energy is not at all similar to what it is in the United States in places where it hasn't been tried. And in fact, the opportunity there is so vast that a, a Association of investment firms and banks is getting together to provide 400 million euros in, in private investment with some government incentives to build the world's biggest um, renewable energy project using solar in North Africa. Um, how that's going to play out over time depends on a lot of things, budget issues, everything, etc. But when governments decide that they want to put money behind this, the private sector follows. So when in 2009, the Recovery Act devoted $80 billion, biggest investment by far in the history of the United States, to renewable energy over several years. The development of infrastructure, um, business incentives, uh, investment incentives, etc., and R&D. China responded by devoting $230 million, uh, billion dollars to, that, to that goal, and that's how China has now become a world leader in power. So, it's, it's something where the economics will pay off. The cost effectiveness of investing in that way is there.
decision makers are more influenced by the realities of the economics or by the people who are interested in not Just to, uh, to add one more uh, detail to uh, Justice, very good explanation of uh, uh, you know, what's, what exactly is cheap. Fossil fuels, we have to remember, um, yeah, renewables in many cases do cost more per kilowatt hour for um, uh, for electricity. However, if we look at how highly subsidized fossil fuels are worldwide, it's something like $500 billion in 2009 is the last year we have estimates for fossil fuel subsidies half a trillion dollars compared to $50 billion for renewables. And as I was saying in the talk, the $345 billion per year of hidden indirect costs that we don't pay just for our coal consumption. So not only are they highly subsidized, but we don't pay that, those, that full cost account. Um, so that's something else to consider when we talk about you know, what's cheap and what's not, because the market isn't honest. And I, I think a really, my students have heard me say this, concrete example that I like to use and I think we should all talk about a lot more is the cost of asthma care in the U.S. Hundreds of studies have linked our rising rates of asthma to our air pollution and the amount of health care needed by asthma sufferers is very, very expensive for individuals and for families and for the government. So I think that's just one very easy example for people to grasp Exactly. 
Now, uh, personal um, behavior changes can have a major impact if you know, people do them. And it's, uh, it's not only rewarding to yourself when you see people emulating you, uh, folks that you, know, you might be friends with or you live with who notice what you're doing. Well, that's not recycling is not a big deal. Getting your own bags to the grocery store, that's not a big deal. Um, I can do that too. And so while on the individual level it's a small you know, drop in the bucket, it, it can create some momentum of its own. Um, you know, it's, it's, as I was saying, getting politically involved is really important because if the uh, elected officials don't know what their constituents want, then, then, or if they don't feel that that issue is important to their constituents, they won't push for laws to address it. And so, uh, as I was saying, what Joseph does going to Capitol Hill and, and meeting the representatives is, is an amazing thing. Um, and, uh, but it's not just on the national level, it can be on the local level. Um, a lot of small communities are doing pay-as-you-throw programs for trash. Um, when I lived up in New Hampshire, in Dover, New Hampshire, we had a pay-as-you-throw program where you would buy city trash bags, um, but recycling was free. So you put them out at the same time. The, the less you throw out, the more you save. On so those are the kind of things that you have to look at. But um, what's really inspiring to me is the anti-coal it's grassroots organizations, it's Sierra Club chapters all across the country. It's um, the mountaintop removal protesters from West Virginia, people who, who can't stand to see the tops blown off their mountains and their valleys filled in with uh, the soil. Um, it's air resources boards from governments across the country. Uh, it's really sort of coming to a swell in 150, I think, proposed coal fired power plants since 2000 have been uh, shelved now because of the efforts of Sierra Club and other grassroots organizations. It's really inspiring. So it's something that everybody can get involved in. Keep in mind, too, that there are a lot of people here on campus who are really interested in these questions, but I think the perception among um, the, shall I call us, older adults on campus, you guys being the younger adults, the perception is that the student body is not all that interested in you know, the Presidential um, Sustainability Committee efforts and things. So there's really a lot of room, I think, right now for Villanova students to be connecting with the, the older adults on campus who are working on these initiatives and would love to have more input and participation from students. Yeah, um, on that specific note, um, next Thursday, there's going to be an opening meeting for the Citizens Climate Lobby at Villanova. The group leader for that new chapter is here in the show. Um, so if you talk to her, or it's myself afterwards, we can maybe point you in the right direction. But that's going to be with the president of the group, um, who is very experienced in helping people understand how to get a message across even when the relationship at the table starts out from a kind of adversarial point of view. Um, part of what you want to try to do is learn how to make arguments that demonstrate the reason of what you're saying. Because the um, it's one thing to just talk about this, try to get the word out, um, to, to act politically, to get involved. Those things are all important. But doing it in a way where you kind of organize your efforts to make sure that everybody's using good information, um, to make sure that language is substantive and not just um, rhetorical. Um, to make sure that you understand the way the people you talk to listen, because the people who are listening have their own vocabulary. And if they're predisposed to disagree with you, the third or fourth word out of your mouth might be the thing that says they'll never hear you. 
So um, listening to the people that you disagree with, I think, is is a really constructive part of, of the process of reaching out. Um, but I think next Thursday's meeting with um, Mark Reynolds, the president of CCL, is going to be an opportunity for students to kind of learn a little bit about the process of, of how to relay, relay a message, how to work out what is and what is not reasonable. Because part of this whole argument has been cultural, that somehow you have practical, business-minded people who agree with the status quo, and you have kind of crazy, you know, liberal, uh, irresponsible thinkers who just want to help trees and want to help rivers and don't have a focus. And that, that cultural bias is waning. Um, something like 80% of the American population thinks we have to do something very serious very soon to fix environmental degradation. Whether it's climate or not is a different issue, but it's the overall environmental problem. So um, figuring out how to make a point that is an unreasoned point of view to say that we should use inefficient old technologies when better choices are available. It is an unreasonable point of view to say that it just makes more sense to keep making money in an easy way over the short term when you could make more over the long term by thinking in a forward-looking uh, way. Um, so I think that getting involvement in the community, but also trying to think creatively about how to message, how to get other people thinking with you, um, creating events where um, you're actually communicating these messages to people, making it clear what it is you think and why it is the most two more three things if I can. You know, one is to be informed, especially on whatever issues you're most moved by. Uh, I think it's Peace and Justice who's running a really good spring film series right now. The poster is right here. Those films are worth seeing just to gather more information and, and to pick one or two online or print publications that hopefully inform you on these issues. I'd also say, again, think about religion because um, whether or not are a religious believer or whatever your perspective is, a lot of the uh, objections here in the U.S. to um, sustainability or you know, climate stewardship have come from the so-called religious right. Interestingly, that's really changing. There are now a number of very vocal leaders in um, evangelical Christian churches and actually in really every religious denomination here in the U.S. who are now speaking very vocally uh, in favor of stewardship or uh, sustainability, whatever, mutual flourishing, whatever term you want to use. And so I think it's really important for more of us to be informed that the institutional churches are now, by and large, favoring caring for the natural world and ourselves. So if you encounter a believer who has the opposite view, uh, it's worthwhile to be able to say, you know, interestingly, did you know that your national church or this major evangelical leader or um, this rabbi or this imam is actually speaking out in favor of uh, you know, care and concern for the natural world? There's a lot of people in that argument. I'm uh, more of an observation than a question, but I drive by Stolkos and Pennsylvania Turnpike schools are from uh, and I see a lot of billboards advertising coal and um, it, it seems to me that that coal like as a as a counter to to this value that we're trying to keep themselves on the table like hey we're still really cheap 
and to clean it out. But um, it seems to me that there should be more advertising for mental health because that is an effective way to change the perception. Um, like if there were some kind of Super Bowl commercial on, uh, on exactly how much trouble we're in and just how much we can sort of help. I mean, it strikes me as a surprise that there's more advertising. Actually, that's a really great point. Um, first of all, coal is not clean. What they call clean coal is a theoretical technology that has never functioned anywhere in the world. Um, it's far too expensive to achieve the technical goal they say that they're trying to achieve. And there, are, I think in North America, are two plants that are basically beta tests that are not achieving the same goal. Um, and so there are all different approaches to how that would work, but it's not improving. Um, on on advertising, I was just in Washington, D.C., and in the D.C. Metro, the American Wind Energy Association has plastered big red and white signs all over the metro that say, you know, wind power is the future, that kind of thing. So that message is getting out there in some places, but an organization like the American Wind Energy Association does not have the resources that Exxon has. It doesn't have the resources that big power companies use um, so that's part of the problem. A couple of years ago, there was, there was a big ad campaign where uh, T. Wood Higgins, who's known as a big uh, oil investor, was trying to promote his vision of how to use natural gas as a kind of, uh, kind of link in the, as a transitional fuel, exactly, to a renewable energy economy. So he wanted to promote both wind and natural gas at the same time. And he spent a lot of money on a national campaign. And it really raised the profile of renewable energy. But when the price of uh, oil started to come down, he took those ads off the air. Um, so it, it's kind of a question of who has money in the game and what they're planning to do with it. Uh, one of the things that, that we think um, of people who are trying to persuade policymakers to change national policy on this is that if you change energy policy in a way that sends a signal to the biggest investors in the marketplace, basically the investment banks on closures. They will then direct the money to those technologies. And we'll start to see that. But it's not clear that we're going to see it before a policy change is made. Just to add uh, another detail or two to that, uh, I did see an American Wind Energy Association commercial uh, running for, for some time. I haven't seen any sort of rebuttal commercials to implement the people, and that's what I've been trying to figure out how do we get that message out and why, is it, why hasn't it been put on television all of this morning. It's not a hard argument to make. It's just just a um, One thing, this just was talking about the investment banks. In 2008, uh, major ones like Morgan Stanley, uh, J.P. Morgan, um, they announced that they were no longer going to lend to for new coal power, power plant production unless the uh, operators could prove that they would be economically viable in case of major climate legislation in, in, from Congress that would you know, put a price on carbon effectively. Um, and actually just last year in August, um, major investment banks, uh, U.S. City was one, I think, J.P. Morgan Chase was another, announced that they would no longer provide any loans to uh, companies that did not top the mining. So I think part of the reason why there's such a huge push for the coal industry in terms of advertising is that they fear their time maybe running out, I should say. Um, feeling the heat from your lenders is, is a big deal. I, 
Actually, I just wanted to quickly add, there is, there is an ad campaign that I think had a pretty high profile ad about a year ago called reality.org. Um, they may even have a Super Bowl ad last year. Uh, but reality.org is basically campaigning against the notion that cold is And they have a lot of factual information. If you go to that website, you can see you know, a lot of online ads and things. saying that uh, before leaving, if you're interested in participating in Citizens Climate Lobby at Villanova, um, learning about that process, uh, just come and leave your email and I'll pass it to her so she can make sure she contacts anyone who's interested. Um, just a quick question. Do we have any questions from the uh, online forum? No? Okay. Um, are there any, any final questions or comments? Okay, I think that we're, we're pretty much reaching our time limit anyway. Um, we're going to wrap up. Thank you for coming. And um, we're going to be having another climate talk roundtable in April. It's going to be probably the 7th. That's the tentatively scheduled date. You might fit, so keep your eyes out. And um, you can also ask me an email if you want to be directly notified about it. Thank you. Thank you.